the Jewish views on anti-Semitism in football, action against discrimination plans to explore just how serious the problem is. Cable Street, 80 years on, JW3 are hosting a series of events to commemorate the anniversary. And as freshers prepare for life at university, UJS tell us exactly what new Jewish students can expect. But first, with a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week, I'm Jason Rosen. A government official has warned a boycott of Israeli products would cause an NHS prescription shortfall. Responding to a question from the former Conservative Friends of Israel chair, Sir Eric Pickles, David Mowat said boycotts of Israeli produce would put 100 million prescriptions at risk. Mr Mowat, who's the Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Health, also said banning these supplies would in all likelihood increase prices paid by the NHS. Jewish representatives have chastised a London church for creating a replica Israeli checkpoint in order to show Palestinians limited access between Jerusalem and the West Bank. The Board of Deputies said the exhibition at Hind Street Methodist Church in Marylebone risked harming Christian-Jewish relations. However, the church said the display was carefully curated to reflect the issues of divided communities and to promote reflection and prayers for peace. A spokesman added there's no criticism of the Jewish community or faith. Fresh concerns have been sparked over the government's plans for faith schools. Jewish and Catholic leaders, including the chief rabbi, welcomed the government's announcement two weeks ago to scrap a requirement for new free schools to accept 50% of its intake from outside the faith. However, a new consultation paper acknowledges evidence that the 50% rule doesn't promote diversity, but does propose that new faith schools will have to demonstrate through consultations and signatures that parents of other faiths would want to send their children to that school. Plans for an Erev in the south of Manchester were withdrawn this week after almost a thousand complaints. The plans would have involved almost a hundred six-metre-high steel poles to form a 12-mile area around Hale and Hale Barns. However, the Hale Erev Project Trust admitted defeat, blaming Jewish representatives behind the proposals for the bad publicity after Trafford Council registers almost a thousand objections with only a hundred messages of support. And finally, former JFS head teacher Jonathan Miller has been announced as the new director of the London School of Jewish Studies. In April, JFS teachers and parents were stunned to hear Mr Miller had left the school in what was first described as a leave of absence before being confirmed as a resignation weeks later. Mr Miller said he was thrilled to be able to apply his experience and passion for Jewish education to a superb organisation. That's the news. Now for a look at the sports, here's Andrew Sherwood. Thanks, Jason. Israel ended the Rio Paralympic Games with three medals after swimmer Impel Pizarro claimed their third bronze. The 29-year-old's ninth Paralympic medal, Israel's overall haul was five fewer than there was in London four years ago. Hapa El Besheva claimed one of Israeli football's best ever European club performances last week after they beat Inter Milan in the opening Europa League clash. The Israeli champions won 2-0 at the iconic San Siro and next faced Premier League side Southampton. And finally, Avi Markovic scored what could go down as being the best ever free kick scored in Jewish football. 
the RC UK FC player manager curled in a sensational effort against Faithfold B in their 7-0 Division 2 win at the weekend. Watch the video of the goal and catch up on all the latest Jewish sport at www.jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this week's edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your edition of The Jewish News. Joining me in the studio to go through it is online editor Jack Mendel and features editor Fran Wolfish. Welcome to you both. The front page of the paper this week reads British Muslim Charity Takes Israel to Court. For legal reasons, we are not going to go into that. So let's dive straight into the paper. And Jack, inside the paper this week, Labour, shock horror, are in the news once more. How come? Labour are in the news once more. They're in the news because this week... A new code of conduct was agreed by the Labour National Executive Committee to tackle online abuse. The proposal was put forward by the Jewish Labour Movement and it basically wants to treat racism and anti-Semitism on the same level as supporting another party. Now that might seem a bizarre comparison. Surely you'd think anti-Semitism is a worse crime than supporting another party. But there you go, that is the motion. And it was welcomed by Jewish MP uh, Ruth Smith, who's been subject to plenty of online abuse, including anti-Semitic abuse. And this kind of comes after a very busy week for the Labour Party. The yes, haven't, haven't they had some sort of issue to deal with, like electing a new leader or something like yeah, that, I think? Yeah, the culmination of the Labour leadership election took place on Wednesday, and we'll shortly find out the winner at the Labour conference next week. But this comes after... Jewish News was the media sponsor for the final hustings between Jeremy Corbyn and Owen Smith, which gave uh, insight into what they'd do if they were elected as Labour leader or, in Jeremy Corbyn's case, re-elected as Labour leader. Indeed. Well, it is certainly an ongoing saga, to say the least. The Labour Party have definitely featured a considerable amount in the news. In fact, I'm almost worried that when all of this does come to a head... Are we even going to see the Jewish news as much of a newspaper, more of a leaflet? Because there won't be anything to put in it, I worry. Yeah, I wouldn't be too worried about that. I'm sure (laughs) Labour will still continue to be in the headlines, as will every other major political party, not to single them out. I think we do have to give credit where credit's due. You know, they are obviously trying to do something about it. They are going to get heavy on online abuse. And that is only something I think to be welcomed. Yeah, I think we should applaud it. It's the first real step that we've seen by Labour to actually address the problems of the recent allegations of anti-Semitism. What I really do hope is that the code of conduct isn't just more words on paper and that if some members are shown to have actually said anti-Semitic remarks, that action actually is taken because it is action, not words that we need at the end of the day. Now, let's see what happens. Well, I mean, obviously, of course, the other thing to point out is that I do find it, as you rightly identified, a little bit of a bizarre comparison to say it's almost as bad as supporting another party. But hey, hopefully if to Labour Party, to be fair to them, if they think that it is a serious crime and something to really get upset about, maybe they will take it seriously. Also in the paper this week. The subject of schools has arisen once more, and this is because I believe that there are a couple of new schools about, or potential new schools, I should say, about. Well, there's a clear demand for new Jewish primary and secondary schools. And at the end of next week, we're actually going to see two new applications being handed into the Department 
for education. One will be coming from Kavanagh College, which will be a five-form entry free school adhering to the United Synagogue ethos. There was actually a meeting earlier this week where more than 100 prospective parents turned out to hear about the proposed school and it will serve the South Hertfordshire, North West Barnet and North Harrow areas. Clearly there is a big demand. The The population in these areas, the Jewish community in these areas is swelling and there's a growing concern that there will not be enough secondary school places in, well there aren't enough now really, but in the years to come it will become even more acute. There's also a second bid which is going to be put in by Barkai College. Very similar in that it will also be it will have a modern orthodox ethos, but they would accept students from Hertfordshire to Westminster. So quite a large geographic area that they will actually be covering in terms of admissions. And it was proposed that perhaps Kavanagh College and Barkai College could actually merge their applications. But there are differences in opinion over the proposed school ethos and also its admissions. So for the moment, there will be two separate applications and hopefully there will be at least one that's successful which can only be a good thing i think for the jewish community certainly well i mean what i find absolutely bizarre about all of this is all of these jewish schools that pop up all over the place is that it doesn't seem that long ago that the only choice out there was either jfs or carmel college that's what i find bizarre they just seem to be everywhere now which is obviously not necessarily a bad thing if that's the way people want to educate their children sadiq khan moving on is in the news as well and that is because he is going to be addressing a cable street event i believe yes sadiq khan it was announced will be addressing the jewish community's commemoration of the 80th anniversary marking the famous battle of cable street and he'll be joined by tc general secretary francis o'grady the commemoration will take place next month and it basically marks 80 years since the uh, planned march through a Jewish area of the East End by Oswald Mosley's British Union of Fascists was repelled by 20,000 Jews, socialists and trade unionists. I mean, it really was a, a moment in history, a moment in British Jewish history, certainly, that they were able to shout down and repel Mosley's black shirts. So... You know, it really will be a moment to commemorate and something that the British Jewish community should be looking forward to seeing. Yeah, and I think that Sadiq Khan addressing the Jewish community is is quite symbolic as well. He is obviously the first Muslim mayor of London, but uh, he's also seen as kind of a real ally of the community. He stands up for the Jewish community. He breaks his uh, Ramadan fast at synagogues and he's actively tried to show that he, he will stand up against anti-Semitism. So I think 80 years after the far right tried to attack the Jewish community, we now have a Muslim mayor standing up for us. It's very poignant, especially in today's climate. And I was going to say, I think all the more important, given that you know neo-Nazism and fascism is somewhat on the rise, as we've seen in Europe, and particularly in the wake of Brexit. So I think you know marking a milestone like this is all the more important. Okay, well, we shall see how that unfolds in the weeks to come. But last, but by absolutely no means least, there is a bar mitzvah boy who's celebrating his bar mitzvah only 100 years later than most people would normally. I kid you not, 113-year-old bar mitzvah boy is the headline. Who is this? 
Yes, he's had to wait a while for his bar mitzvah, but Yisrael Crystal, all being well, will be celebrating his bar mitzvah. He's 113 and he lives in Haifa. He missed his bar mitzvah when he was 13, 100 years ago, because of the First World War. So it's a lovely story to think, you know, that first of all, that he's even got to this age, but now that he is able to mark his milestone, becoming a Jewish man, which of course he has been <laughs> all these years, but now it's official. Not only is he going to be celebrating his bar mitzvah so late, but this guy is not only the oldest man in the world, but he's a Holocaust survivor as well. So, I mean... This is a person, he's, he's really one of a kind, so it's, it's, a special, it's a special moment for him. Certainly is. Well, muzzles off to him from all of us, I guess. But that is all we've got time for for the paper review for this week. Thank you very much, you two. Don't forget, you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can always read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, anti-Semitism rears its ugly head in all ways and is certainly not a new phenomenon for the community. All aspects of life can be affected, whether it's politics, as we've just been hearing, and certainly has been the case over the past few months, or even the beautiful game. The organisation Action Against Discrimination are to host a panel event that hopes to unpick just how serious a problem anti-Semitism in football really is. It will be chaired by the chairman of AAD, Jonathan Maitlis. I've been speaking to him to find out more about this. I started by asking him to explain exactly what his and his organisation's concerns are. Well, quite simply, anti-Semitism in football still exists, whatever people might say otherwise. And our belief, or the charity's belief, is that the activities or the action taken to combat anti-Semitism in football has been inadequate to date. And the purpose of this charity is to raise funds to donate to other organisations that combat anti-Semitism in, in football and to put the whole matter back onto the radar screen as a serious issue uh, to be addressed. Okay, so tell us about some of those organisations that you mentioned that do work to try and tackle it, because obviously there's your organisation, but what else is there out there that does try and combat such issues? And what are the issues they face? Well, you've got the primary body running uh, English football, which is the Football Association. They have a remit to combat anti-Semitism, racism in football. Two, you have the organisation called Kick It Out, kick racism out of football, which is funded by the major footballing bodies such as the Football Association, the Premier League, the League Managers Association and others, and they try valiantly to deal with it, but the reality is that they have no powers of enforcement as such. So with what has been going on, and I can cite various examples if you want me to, to be specific, we believe that there is a need for this issue to be tackled properly. In also in answer to your question, I, we don't believe that the community organisations have equally failed to address the situation and to deal with it uh, properly and effectively. You see, what seems a pity in all of this is because I've always known in the limited experience that I've had with football, because it's not exactly a hidden secret on this programme that I'm not the biggest football fan. Having said that, though, I always have an understanding that it is just a, supposed to be 
a game at the end of the day. I, I know it's the beautiful game. I know it's supposed to be the game that brings everyone together, no matter what their background. But it would appear as if it's unfortunate how marred it can get with something such as anti-Semitism. It just seems almost ridiculous to even associate the two together, yet it is a very strong presence, isn't it? Well, sport, as you say, is supposed to be a, a healing pastime, whether it be the Olympics, whether it be rugby, whether it be cricket, and whether it be football. The reality is that football, for whatever reason, uh, and there are lots of reasons that one can go into at, at greater length, has become a breeding ground for aggression, hooliganism, and sadly, racism. We had recently had events at the former Olympic Stadium only a week ago where fans were fighting each other. We've had incidents at White Hart Lane last year with Arsenal supporters attacking Tottenham supporters and chanting anti-Semitic comments to the bargain. So if you want to take this issue seriously, you can ignore it. Of course you can ignore it and say, right, fine, I won't bother. Let it happen. I'll go home. I'll watch my football. I'll go home in any event. But if one is going to adopt some sort of social conscience and some sort of self-esteem, then the matter should be properly addressed. Tell us a little bit about this event, in that case, that you are hosting at JW3. You're chairing it, aren't you? Uh, I'm chairing it, and the purpose of the event is effectively twofold. First to raise the whole issue, which has gone somewhat quiet in community terms, and two, to raise money that will be given to those charities. And this is a panel event, isn't it? So it's obviously going to be a discussion very much similar along the lines that we're talking about now. What can be done about racism and anti-Semitism in football? What should be done about it? Well, actually, if you look at the title, the title is quite provocative because what it says is anti-Semitism in football, how serious is it now? So there are conflicting views. I know for a fact that one of the panellists believes that there is no anti-Semitism in football. Having said that, if you look at the Kick It Out statistics, uh, of 83 faith-related issues that were reported to Kick It Out last season, 2015-16, 79 related to anti-Semitism. So there's a conflict there in views. And I'm sure that there'll be a conflict within the, within the audience. Tell us a bit about the panel. Who's actually going to be on this panel? We selected or invited people to sit on the panel from sort of diverse areas of interest. We have the chairman of the Board of Deputies who will be asked and can say what the Board of Deputies are, are doing in relation to combating anti-Semitism in football. A Jewish footballer who can talk about any abuse that he may or may not have received. Leading journalist Henry Winter of The Times, who is familiar with the topic and has written on it in previous incarnations. The author of Does Your Rabbi Know You're Here, which was a book about Jews in football, who has a specific view on the particular issue. The director of Kick It Out, so she can be quite specific in relation to incidents that have been reported to Kick It Out. And finally, a football owner who can talk about football clubs generally and his specifically as to what football clubs are or are not doing to combat racism in football. So the audience will have an opportunity to ask questions. One anticipates quite a lively discussion. So each individual has been selected as they represent a different area of the world of football and fighting racism. If somebody wants to be in the audience for this particular event, where do they go and what do they do? Well, what they need to do is to book their ticket on Eventbrite 
details of which are on the flyer. The flyer appears in the Jewish News and on various websites. Most synagogues have been supporting the event and they put that on their website and the flyer has been widely circulated to, to prospective guests. My gut feeling is that many people will turn up on the night without having booked on, on the internet first and will have as most events have a last-minute rush. There has been a lot of interest shown in the event, and if I'm not mistaken, some hundred tickets have already been sold on Eventbrite, but people have been talking about it quite actively, in Jewish circles in particular. Just finally, what are you hoping to achieve out of this? You yourself, your organisation, what do you hope will be the outcome? And ultimately, what would be the, if you'll forgive the pun, the goal? What are you trying to achieve as far as football is concerned? Well, first, we want to put the whole matter back onto the community radar screen because, as I explained earlier, we believe that this issue has been neglected over the years and that the community has become somewhat complacent. And two, to ensure that other authorities do take specific action against offenders in this particular area. This is the first of a number of events that we propose holding. And I should point out that over two years ago, we weren't called Action Against Discrimination then, we were called Support for Charity. We changed the name subsequently. We held and organized an event to raise money for Kick It Out at Wembley Stadium, which raised in excess of 40,000 pounds clear for that particular body. So we have achieved in the past and we intend to achieve in the future. The bottom line is that we, Action Against Discrimination, intend to become the leading voice in combating anti-Semitism in football. Chairman of Action Against Discrimination, Jonathan Maitlis, talking to me there about his organisation's concerns over anti-Semitism in football and the event they'll be hosting in light of it. It's called Anti-Semitism in Football, How Serious Is It? And it'll be at JW3 on the 6th of October from 6.30pm. And tickets are priced at £15. For more information, go to actionagainstdiscrimination.eventbrite, spelt B-R-I-T-E, .co.uk. That's Action Against Discrimination, or one word, .eventbrite.co.uk. The full flyer can be found on page 27 of The Jewish News This Week. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive will be joined by actor and photographer Tony Honigberg, founder of the Jewish Poetry Society Judy Carberitz, and lawyer Denise Lester. They'll be discussing Erevs. Plus, community reporter Diana Toman will be speaking to the president of the Union of Jewish Students, Josh Seatler, about what life on campus can be like for new students. But first, it's been 80 years since the Battle of Cable Street and JW3 are hosting a series of events from the 6th to the 10th of October to commemorate the anniversary. A couple of those events will feature historian David Rosenberg, who's been speaking to entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton. Kate started by asking David to give us a little insight into what life on Cable Street would have been like. It was a, a kind of narrow artery leading from just where the city meets the East End and it leads east towards the docks and it, both sides of the road, it was a very narrow street, both sides of the road had shops 
at ground level and two levels of tenement flats above. And part of my family, I mean, my grandfather's cousin had a shop at 27 Cable Street, which ended up about 20 yards before the first barricades on the day of the Battle of Cable Street. And they lived above the shop. And people worked, I mean, you know, you do live above the shop, but they worked, I mean, what, they were bakers? Well, sort of- there was a lot of people, boots and shoemakers, tailors, dressmakers, furniture makers. And and the interesting thing about it is that if you go two-thirds of the way down the street, it's almost entirely Jewish in 1936. And then suddenly the Goldsteins and Rosenbergs and and uh, they turn into Higgins and O'Sullivan because it's the Irish end of Cable Street. And the connection between the Jews and the Irish is very key to what happened uh, on the day. Well, now that you've mentioned it, tell us what happened. Well, what was the day? What was the build-up? Describe yeah, the, the, the lead-up. The build-up was... Mosley's party, Oswald Mosley, the leader of the British Union of Fascists, his party was growing strong in 1936 in the East End among the people who lived on the outskirts of where the Jews lived. And he had four branches there with thousands of members and supporters who were encroaching more and more into the Jewish area. And that was because of the German influence or because people felt that the Jews were taking over part of the East End? It was when Mosley's movement started in 1932, he followed Mussolini more than Hitler. But in 1936, Mosley's movement is taking a further turn more towards Hitler-type fascism. And they were winding up the surrounding communities, telling them that all the problems they had in their lives of unemployment, low wages, bad housing, it's because of those Jews. And the Jews are on their doorstep. They're a kind of visible enemy. It's one poor community being encouraged to attack another poor community. But the anti-fascist movement that was growing was trying to bring those communities together. So the, the and the anti-fascists were trying to, well, they were supposed they're always on the back foot, really, in that particular situation. They were defending themselves. Yeah. So tell us about the night of uh, in 1936. About a week before, posters went up around East London and other parts what of London. What time of the year was this? this was, it, it would, the posters went up at the end of September and it was advertising big posters saying Mosley speaks in East London October the 4th. But, and it sounds like, and then it's presented as a kind of march, but then you read it down and it's four marching columns and he wants to have four different meetings in different parts of the East End in Shoreditch, Bethnal Green, Bow and Limehouse. And he wants to march right through the heart of the Jewish area. It was an attempt to intimidate that community. It was a show of strength and meant to yeah, frighten that community, make it feel in It wasn't quite the Kristallnacht levels at this day. No, but that summer there'd been, spring and summer 36, there'd been terrible violence against the Jewish community. And there'd been two big debates in Parliament about it. The local MPs had given loads of evidence in those debates. But at the end of the day, the Home Secretary says, well, the best thing is if everyone on all sides behaves reasonably, which was useless. Anger really building up amongst the people that were under siege. They were not getting help from outside. The authorities were not really listening to them. The leaders of their community were not listening to them. They had to do it for themselves, but they did it. What did they do? What, what, how did what, they, so they, there was this four-columned march. It yeah, sounds pretty it was, frightening down a narrow well, road. It was, well, it ended up in Cable Street, but that wasn't where it intended to go. Okay. It happened because the gateway to the East End was at Allgate, a place called Gardner's Corner. 
And that's where all the main streets of the East End and the city meet. And if you're going to go into the East End from the city, and he was massing his thousands of fascists in the city, you would have to come through Gardner's Corner. At Gardner's Corner, there was a massive blockade. Tens and tens of thousands of East Enders, Jewish and non-Jewish, blockaded Gardner's Corner so much that nothing could come in or out of it. And there were mounted police. There were 7,000 police sent by the Home Secretary to clear a path for Mosley so that he could exercise his freedom of movement, his freedom of speech. That week, 100,000 East Enders, Jews and non-Jews, had petitioned the Home Secretary, don't let the march go ahead. But he thought Mosley's free speech was the important thing. But the police couldn't break through the crowds, and so they had to say to Mosley, you can't march through there, you'll have to go further south if you're going to go into the East End. And further south is this narrow artery, Cable Street. But the anti-fascists had worked out that that would be the plan B. And so in Cable Street, they started to build barricades. The first one had turned over lorry with furniture stacked behind it. Others made out of sheet metal, others made out of wood. And the key thing, though, was the Irish community, because Mosley had tried to win the Irish against the Jews. On that day, many Irish people came from the Irish end of Cable Street to help the Jews build the barricades. You had dockers and tailors next to each other, you know, actually working together to stop the fascists. So I, I, many people don't know that there was actually this sort of unified yeah. attack or well, counterattack. Without, without the unity, Mosley would have Mosley would have won. Mosley would have continued to grow, and it was actually the fact that the people came together, Jew and non-Jew, that actually stopped Mosley in his tracks. And they didn't get no, down. because the police tried to the police tried to break through, and they managed to eventually dislodged the first barricade and they thought they'd got through but then they got stuck between between that and the next barricade and up in the windows above the flats above the shops there there's a lot of women in the flats there who picked up everything that came to hand rained it down on the police people down on the ground level resisting and in the end the police had to say to Mosley look it's too dangerous you're not there's going to be too much disorder you're going to have to turn around Go the other way and disperse. He didn't make a big fuss because he was getting married two days later in Germany (laughs) and he didn't want to be in a police cell in in London. So moving forward 80 years, what's the format of the event, JW3? The JW3, some months ago I went to them because I was telling them about some of the plans of things we were going to be doing in the East End because in the East End we're planning a march and rally and various cultural events and I said to them you know what are you going to be doing around Cable Street have you thought of this have you you know here's some ideas and I gave them some ideas about it and offered to do a walk for them because I do a walk through the year called anti-fascist footprints and I left it with them and then they've taken it on and run with it in their own way and, and they've set up a whole series of events I'm involved with an event on the Thursday and the Monday so I can tell you about those ones I know less about the ones that are in between and who's who's it meant for who the I th- well JW3 I mean I think it's it's a Jewish community centre I suppose they largely get a, a mixed Jewish audience of different kinds different different generations they've got some events which are for kids They've got some events which probably would appeal more to young young people who are not kids, young adults, mm-hmm. others that are more for, for a sort of general audience. I mean, the walk I'm doing, 
I would imagine it won't be it won't be kids coming along, and it's likely to attract people who have who have some memories, maybe through their families of of your relatives who were involved with the Battle of Cable Street. On the Monday, it's a spoken word event, which I'm doing with Sam Berkson, who's a hip hop poet, Ivor Dembina, who's a comedian, Bernard Copps, who is a poet and playwright, who was nine years old at the Battle of Cable Street, but he was he was down there, he was a witness to it. And I'll be doing, telling some of the story, but through the words of people that were participants in it, a number of whom I've did interviews with and, and you know, I've, I've sort of got lots of material in their own words about what happened on the day. And if people want to come to, to, to either to one of your to walks or to the right. KW3 event. Right. If you want to come on any of my walks, you can go to eastendwalks.com. If you want to come to the know about all the events that are happening in the East End, there's a website, cablestreet80.org.uk. And the and to find out about the JW3 Festival and all the events they're having, go to jw3.org.uk. Historian David Rosenberg speaking to entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton there. For more information on the Cable Street Festival, again, which runs from the 6th to the 10th of October at JW3, then go to jw3.org.uk. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter. We are at jewishviewsuk. Now, life at university can be daunting for anyone. That's what they tell me. I'm not actually one who's experienced it for myself. I digress. Well, we are now officially in what's known as Freshers' Week, the time when new students go and find out for themselves what lies ahead. Of course, life for Jewish students could be even more daunting, especially in light of some of the news we've heard from various campuses up and down the country. Community reporter Diana Toman has been speaking to Josh Seetler, the president of the Union of Jewish Students, to get an insight. Diana started by asking Josh to tell us exactly how the family orientations of Judaism translate for a student once they arrive on campus. I find that fascinating because I come from a very family orientated community and it's very so for me it was interesting when I came to university that that I went to university in London and each campus has a group of students who also enjoy or many of them enjoy family experiences and so they put on Friday night dinners and they have so in Sheffield for example they're having a welcome they're just they were just discussing what food there's going to be but they're having a welcome event next week where everyone's going to come and, and meet each other and they're going to decide how how's it going to look this year and they're going to go out and they're going to have a have Friday night dinners and they're going to have all kinds of events and it's really it's interesting that because it's nice being in a, at a smaller JSOC at a smaller Jewish society where they're much. It's much more of a family feel. You you can really see that they everyone takes an extra second to get to know each other, and the people are really trying because there's not hundreds of people here, and it's very much. Uh, it's a real a real family feeling. That sounds fabulous. Do you all go to shul as well? There are different provisions, and different campuses and different cities have different provisions. But I know that on many campuses, they they if there are enough people, they make a service or they make more than one service so that they can have a have have something accessible to all students. Would you say there's a consistency across the universities? In other words, will there always be a JSOC in each of the communities or are some universities more popular with Jews than others? So there are, we know of six, or there are 64 Jewish societies in the, in the United Kingdom and Ireland, of which there are probably Jews on more than 
just those campuses, but there are 64 established Jewish societies across the country. So it, it, it spans from Exeter to, to St. Andrews and Aberdeen. And there are people from UJS currently all over the country. As, as we speak, there are people in, there's someone in Cardiff, there's someone in Aberdeen, there's someone in Oxford, I'm in Sheffield, all over the place. But every, every Jewish society has its own unique way of doing its own Judaism because again it's peer-led it's run by the students so they decide every the the committees usually change every year and they decide what what do the students want and on the smallest in the smaller campuses it's much more of a, of a family feel as I said before and on the bigger Jewish in the bigger Jewish societies it's it's really quite interesting to go and see there are there are some universities that are, that are very very popular with Jewish students and I was actually in Birmingham this week and it was amazing there were hundreds of students that came to the to the freshers event and there were first years there. There were people that went to meet the first years and go and go and see what's going on. And it's really quite quite exciting to see this buzzing communities buzzing. They are really are buzzing communities of students across the United Kingdom and Ireland. And it's really, really, I feel very lucky to be able to see it because I've never been to anywhere other than my own university until now. So this was a bit of an eye opener. Then it sounds fabulous, actually. Well, I, I mean, I went for my campaign. I went around the country. I went to, but like not. I hadn't been able to go to 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 everywhere. I only had a week. To, and I was really I went campaigning all over the country, but like not not like this. I didn't get to go and sit in the Jewish society and really feel part of it. Like I was sitting standing behind. The, the, I've been to Glasgow so far, Birmingham. Um, I went to St George's in South London, and now I'm here in Sheffield. And I've really felt part of the, of the Jewish society, and it's really quite a special feeling. What's the mood like amongst Jewish students now? I mean, all we seem to hear in the news is how challenging life for university can be is it as bad as it appears i can tell you that the, the the vast vast majority of jewish students have a fantastic time on campus they have a really great time i mean you can you can just see that like you go to the stalls and it's not there's not uh, uh, anything it's not negative the feelings are not negative it's exciting people want to get involved people i can see it with my own eyes and i felt it today people came and said hello how are you i i want to go to friday night dinner or i was in glasgow and there were so many people coming past asking for for services for high holidays from all different denominations there were people the international students in particular were very keen on on, on finding services for for yom Tov or for for i wanted for rosh hashanah and it was really rather than there being a negative feel again it's the beginning of the year everyone's excited students are excited and, and the vast majority of jewish students have an amazing time and jewish societies and jewish students are doing amazing things across the country right and do you think this will reflect on how they deal with, for instance, anti-Israel rhetoric? It can be challenging on campuses. Like, uh, there's no, there's no question about it. It can be challenging. But Jewish students know, first of all, that they have their Jewish societies to to look after them, that to like, to they can they can organise. But also, they have much wider help. So, you, like, UJS runs campaigns during the year, and UJS has uh, are connected to many organisations that will help Jewish students on campus. And, and when it when it comes to it, if there's a problem on campus, Jewish students happen like Jewish students will phone up UJS or will phone up CST or will phone up whoever it is and, and will will really work and, and get involved to, to to work it out. But there's so much help for Jewish students that that we that that's what we try and do. And it's really it, it's I think it, it's it's not as but it's not as bad as, as it's made out to be in the media. And I think that especially when I was a student and it's still the same now, the Jewish students are, are are lucky to have the help that they do in the community and, and around. What advice would you give to a young member of the Jewish community listening right now to you who's either just going off to university or maybe has just moved there? Oh, a general piece of... <laughs> I gave a piece of advice, um, which is make sure you don't leave your washing for too long. 
because it starts to smell but on a genuine like on a genuine um from from a from a UJS perspective I think it's so important just to go and say hello to the Jewish society go and say hello go make yourself known go and make some new friends because it's difficult being on campus or being away from home if you're away from home for the first time is not easy it's not always an easy place to be and the Jewish and your Jewish society gives you that that home where you where you can just go and say hello. If you see someone in the corridor, oh yeah, that's someone from JSOC. Go and say hello. And, and if it does come to the point where you might feel something, there might be something unpleasant or you might feel uncomfortable on campus, go and speak to your JSOC. And the JSOC speak to us and we speak to other other parts of the community and we can help if there's anything that's not, that, that they feel threatened by or feel uncomfortable on campus. But the most important thing is to get, to me, uh, from UJS's perspective, but also on a personal level, is to get involved with the JSOC, get a, a core group of friends, go to the Friday night dinners, Go and just go and go and be with friends because campus is the time where you can enjoy yourself and really you really can because I've just come out of, out of campus and it's it's amazing going looking at campus now but I'm I do miss being at university and I miss enjoying just just enjoying my time and it's the most important thing that Jewish students enjoy their time on campus. Josh Seitler, the president of the Union of Jewish Students, talking to Diana Toman there about what new Jewish students can and should expect from life on campus. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Moves, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining me today is actor and photographer Tony Honigberg, founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carberts, and lawyer Denise Lester. And the subject today is based on Eruvs. This week, pans for an Eruv on the south of Manchester were withdrawn after almost 1,000 complaints. The question is, how do we feel about Eruvs? Are they a vital part of a modern community's way of life, or are they just an excuse to do what the reform and liberal communities have been doing for many years? Denise, let's start with you. What do you think about Eruvs? Well, I'm going to declare an interest here and to say that I'm a United Synagogue member. My own, although my own personal perspective is that I live very much in the modern world, I'm, I'm fully supportive of the concept of Arab. And indeed, behind the scenes some years ago when the era for the local my local synagogue, which is South Hampstead in the, Cam, uh, in the Camden area, was mooted, I worked behind the scenes with other deputies, as I'm also a deputy, from the liberal communities, from the reform communities and from other orthodox communities to garner support for it. I feel that it allows the E&D perspective of Judaism to operate insofar as we are all inclusive as a community. It allows the people who are disabled, people with children, the elderly and others to actually operate in a more modern fashion and go to shul where Shabbat can, and, and visit other people's houses where by Shabbat can otherwise be very lonely for others. So I'm Yeah, that's one, way, that's one way of putting it, of course, but uh, there are other ways of looking at it because here in London, they're talking about starting an era of which takes in virtually the whole of... Westminster, Camden, and somewhere else. I mean, it's it's huge. And how can you ever expect an Eruv to be the size of a huge city, as it as it turns out to be? You can't turn it into whatever you, your good 
good thoughts are. Let's see what the others say. Well, I just think you could call the whole UK a, an Erev. We've got water going round it, if you're that way inclined. <laughs> do that. Well, yeah, it, well, yeah I, I suspect you could do in one way, but uh, an Erev was formed out of being the size of a small community, so it shouldn't actually be too large. I'm also a member of the United Synagogue. I think it's a bit of a nonsense, personally, <laughs> although it doesn't affect me if there is one, because if there isn't one, I would still, if I had to wheel a pusher, I'd wheel a pusher. If I had to carry an umbrella, I'd carry an umbrella. If I had to carry my talus to shawl, I would do that anyway if there wasn't one. But it helps the people who believe... Who believe? Who believe? Who yes, are so. who are Shomrish about who are observant? And it's like the essential. There's an analogy. It's like the laws of keeping kosher kashrut. One has respect for those who are more observant, whatever one's personal perspective is. And I have to say that the amount of goodwill between the various communities in the area where I I live in Camden across the religious faith perspective was quite astonishing and why not have an Erev that's the size of Westminster? Why not? If you um, have a real Erev, yes, but as I tried to explain a moment ago this is what they're talking about in London right now I don't know what they were talking about mm. in Manchester but what they're talking about in London right now is an Erev that's the size of half of London. Which is which a is nonsense. Which is never the idea. Nonsense. Well, you know, hold on a moment. Hold on a moment. There are there are people who aren't Jewish that, that, that listen to this programme and there are people who would not want Jewish people to engage in religious observance. So I'm going to start, I'm going to be the checker to everyone and say, why can't we be loud and proud? I think we also oh, need... Oh, there's nothing wrong with that. But why, <laughs> why would we have a, an error of, of that size that Clive has said when it's really... We have a small error of... And, and I think which is what, let, which is what we've got it, so far. I go to Lauderdale Synagogue, Sephardi Synagogue, most Shabbats. Right. And many people come there with umbrellas, with push chairs and whatever else. The rabbi doesn't say, oh, how naughty of you to come with a push chair or an umbrella or whatever it was. You don't have to, bearing in mind that there's an Eruv. And the few people who come to the synagogue every Shabbat who do come, and those who are strictly cashier, are not going to be annoyed if somebody comes along with an umbrella. So that, that makes the whole thing... But there are... No, no, no. But there are people that ca that do observe, who do follow the concept of, of going from the private to the public domain and not wishing to carry and and do not want to push will um, push chairs and I know from my community which is Southampton we've got we've got quite a from contingent and there are other others and just because there are those who are less religious it doesn't mean to say that you have to go to the to the left on this rather respect and and accommodate the right. You see, if we if we, if we don't stick up for our own traditions, who will? If yes, not now, this, us. This is actually not <laughs> that much of a tradition because for years we went around without eruvim. I suppose it should be called. Yeah, I'm sitting here reading something from my rabbi. Rabbi Shlomo Levine, who says an entire tractate of the Talmud is devoted to the subject. I hope you don't mind, Rabbi Shlomo, me reading this. This is the concept of an error, of a brief explanation. And the laws are subsequently codified by Maimonides and Joseph Kara and the respective halachic compendium. So the concept of an error is very historic. Just because 
we are here tonight propounding quite vehemently one view or the other does not negate the fact that this was a historic device whereby there could be an elongation of the concept of the private domain into the public, public domain, domain, which is, for the people who aren't Jewish, it's a, it's a device which allows Orthodox Jews to carry and push wheelchairs, push chairs, and what, what uh, saying, not be confined to their what homes. What you're saying is right, but what Clive's saying, and, and I have to agree with Clive, is that the vastness of this proposed Erev is surely too vast. To be an Erev, it has to be... Closed in. Uh, there has to be a certain size, well, I well, thought. I was understood. Well, no, there are, po- there are poles. The yeah, no, no, we know how, poles, they, we know how they work. And the strings. Well, you might, you might know, but the, our listeners don't necessarily know. But you cannot say, just because it's vast, it shouldn't be, nor should it work. But that wasn't the idea of the original, uh, the, this original concept that you've got here. It had to be... It wasn't as as big an area. I mean, they spoke about this originally they when they came up with, with an Erev in, in Edgware. They were talking about it. And someone said, well, why don't you use the M25 as the boundary? Because it's a continuous road and you could use that as a boundary. And they wouldn't, wouldn't, couldn't do it because of the size of the area. It had to be the size of a local area. Well, what's Clive saying? Is this now not going to be a local area? Is it area? done by size big. or population? I think it's done by area, and there's also the area, concept of natural boundaries. Now, I'm not an area of architect. <laughs> in fact, I'm not an architect at all. Is there an architect in the house? I think not today. <laughs> you know... So it may well be that there are sub areas, and I, I know that whoever whoever has designed this, whatever, and we can't misrepresent the decision because there's been the the era of in northwest London, which is in in separate strands and separate areas, mm. and it's not only the poles and the strings. There's also natural boundaries, um, walls, and uh, etc. And I'm not an expert, but we can't just say, oh, it, it can't be so and it shouldn't be so because it happens to be vast, because none of us are experts. But in fact, <laughs> and my grandfather was a rabbi and he had to spend the, the last few years of his life in a wheelchair. Right. And he said, I would rather go to synagogue in a wheelchair than to go and not go at all. But he said, even if I lived in an Eruv, I would, st- I would then obviously you be able to use the wheelchair, but I will still use the wheelchair. Also, I guess from from that point of view, there are there are people in the era of Edgeware who don't believe in it anyway. Well, know? no, well that's, I see people. That's kind of irrelevant because I don't believe. No, it. I mean, I mean, I'm talking about religious people yeah. who don't believe. Oh, it, I not, see what you mean. Than, yeah, than someone that may be a little bit secular reform, or reform yes. or, or progressive. Yeah, these are these are ultra orthodox who don't believe in the era of either which is an interesting well, it's, fact it's, it's, I mean it's it's, 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 also, it's it, it is quite interesting because there are other, I mean it's like you think it as, as a device in enabling people to lead their lives I mean I'd, I'd like to go back Clive if I may to your own family perspective I mean there have been times in my life where I've been more from a more Shomrei but than I am now and I will say I will say to you that I know of people who have been confined to a wheelchair. And also, I had major knee surgery a few years ago, and it was very difficult. It was impossible for me to walk to my shawl unless I drove. 
and it caused me a great deal of discomfort. Now, there was the potential that I could have been confined to a wheelchair and that would have caused me a great deal of angst. Times have moved on and I've had knee surgery and I'm able to walk to my own synagogue, which I thank Hashem that I can do. So, you know, at the end of the day, each individual Jew and each individual human being leads their life according to their own strictures, but we should allow the most orthodox to enable themselves to celebrate Shabbat. You're saying going to the highest common denominator. Absolutely. It's like the Kashrut argument. But sometimes the highest common denominator don't use it because they don't believe in it. That's what I was saying. There's some Mm. extremely orthodox Mm. people in nature who don't, don't believe in it and don't use it. I'm not not against Eruvim. I'm not against an Eruv. What I am against is saying all sorts of excuses if you like. And you can get into a car because you want to go to a synagogue in another part of of this new Eruv, which is probably 5, 10, 15 miles away, and say I can drive on Shabbat because this is now an Eruv. Well, I think that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I, think I don't, that's yeah. a I don't think, think you'd be able stretch. to drive, but it's huge. Could certainly that's push a, that's a stretch. Stretch. They yeah. say yeah. that driving is work, although to me, to drive no, up not. a hill it's is not work. Left. No, it's the, the driving concept is because you're creating a spark and you're not allowed to create yeah. a flame. But if that's why bus, you can't open a fridge. So what about with a light? Interesting. If the you bus driver, if the bus driver is driving the bus and causing the spark, and it's going anyway, are you then allowed to get on the bus? Not really. No. Is that because it's going against the whole... Yeah, well, yeah it goes against it. the interesting you bring that up, because yeah. I was talking to someone the other day who is deeply religious. He is Sephardi. He's very, very, very from. Yet he, at times, comes to synagogue and runs after a bus. And if, while he's running, he can get on the bus, he will go on it. And then when he comes to the synagogue, he jumps off the bus and runs through it. I think it's crazy, but it's, <laughs> that, he believes that's that. That's weird. Well, he doesn't need to carry money because if he's got a freedom pass, he hasn't even paid he for carry, it. He doesn't so doesn't carry his, his money. Is his concept, is his explanation that he is in motion, so he's extending his emotion exactly. by going on the bus, but he just happens to have jumped on the bus, but he's still in motion. D- then does he run on the bus? On the while bus, he's running on the bus. He's running on the bus. He clearly... He says to the conductor, I am a Jew and I don't carry money and I don't I can't drive. I'm meant to be resting all, all the Sabbath, mm. but this is my way of getting to the service quickly. And the conductor, she he says, nearly always laughs. He's once been told to get off, <laughs> but every other time they did say okay. <laughs> I love it. I think it's just a great way of using it. Do you know know something? And and this is actually, we're talking about errors and and this. And, you know, people from outside our community may look at us and sometimes think we are a little bit mushuga. Well, I sometimes sometimes look at us as a bit But that's the point. That is the point. I'm trying to to make, Denise, absolutely. You know, the, the old adage is if you've got two Jews, you've got at least three or four opinions. Yeah. Well, we've got four here. Well, exactly, exactly. And we've got lots of different opinions. And, and, you know, you'll have had, no doubt, people sitting, ruminating in a room, drawing diagrams, looking at the measurements... 
plutzing, quetching, <laughs> coughing <laughs> and agonising over this. Yeah. And there would have been a whole halakhic Talmudic debate about where the Arab is, where it starts, where it I'm, finishes, I'm, I'm, in the Midendrin or I'm whatever. A, and I haven't got a clue. I must say that... <laughs> you know, I haven't got a clue. I must say that I don't... <laughs> When people object to it, I don't see why they should object to it because it doesn't affect them. The poles in the street don't affect them. The wires no, that's don't affect them. True. I mean, I, I walk around Edgeware. I don't even know where the poles no, or the wires I. are. You can't see them. No. And I think this was probably the objection in Manchester was having more street furniture going up. But you don't see it. You know, but you if there. a frummer wants to, some very religious wants to move into the area, it can even I increase the price of the yeah, house. So. Yeah. But it, it just means that they can do... It won't affect me. People, as it long as it doesn't hurt me... they can do what me. they want to do. And, and fair enough, you know. It's, I, it, think I mean, there, there are you know there are lots of uh, there are lots of people out there who do not want this. They just think, oh, it's you know that the Jews are going to be a ghetto, ghetto. Yeah, yeah etc. And and the reality is. Jewish people do gravitate to areas to live, as it, as do other ethnic yeah, groups. Yeah, of course we do, because we're comfortable with our I own mean, community. Yes. And, and, that, and, and that makes sense. Have... I mean, Golders Green is a supreme example of it, and it makes complete sense. Mm. Mm. And there's a part of London where many Hindus live, and they all love it because they're all together. Exactly. That makes sense. It makes up yeah. your community. And you, you know, know, if you walk down the, and you walk down the the Edgware Road, there's an entirely different so complexion, or yeah. South Hall, yeah. you know, wherever. The reality is that we live in an amazing country with so many diverse multi ethnic groups. It's beautiful, actually, isn't it? we should celebrate our mm. diversity, not uh, not think that it's a negative that a religious grouping such as the Orthodox want to practice and, and just have respect for it. Well, that's a very good way in, which, in yes. which to end. Our, I'm afraid our time's up, but my thanks to our guests, actor and photographer Tony Honigberg, founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carberts and lawyer Denise Lester. And time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi, UK. In a year of shocking news... I was quite surprised to see the despair on social media of the imminent divorce of Brangelina. And it makes you think about the priorities of people in life, that this is something that they care so deeply about. But at the same time, the idea of marriage or happiness or togetherness is something that's very important to the human condition. And what is fascinating about Judaism is this week, we have in the parasha the list of the tochacha, the curses, the terrible things that will happen to the Jewish people in their history, many of which unfortunately have occurred. But the Torah gives not really a reason, but certainly an explanation towards the end about why these things happen, what we did wrong. And in essence it says, because you didn't serve God, besimcha, with, with joy and with a full heart. And I was at the chief rabbi's conference where my friend from America explained one of the problems in the Jewish world is we don't have passion anymore. We are not so committed to really loving what we're doing, to really enjoying our Judaism. Simcha is a vital component of life, not just in marriage, but in everything we do. And in some ways, the lesson of Kitavo, the lesson of the Tochacha, is that if we are not enjoying our Judaism, if we are not expressing a love for what we do in Judaism, and a love for God and a love for our religion. In some ways, we really are missing out on a vital component. We're coming up to Rosh Hashanah when we look back at the year and look forward to a new one. And we wish everyone a Shana Tova, a happy new year. But also, we hope it's going to also be a joyous new year. 
to enjoy your Judaism, enjoy your life, and not get too down when celebrity couples, unfortunately, break up. Thank you to Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi UK with our Thought for the Week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Jonathan Maitlis, David Rosenberg, Josh Seitler. Thanks also to the Schmooze team, Judy Carberitz, Denise Lester and Tony Honigberg. And of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget to thank the team, including those who helped produce this programme this week. Adam Bradley, Sue Greenberg, Andrew Sherwood and Jack Mendel. You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.